Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the life and theology of Reinhold Niebuhr. So we have with us Dr. Jeremy Sabella. He is a lecturer at the Department of Religion at Dartmouth College. Uh, he's the author of An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. And uh, this book serves as a companion volume to An American Conscience, the award-winning documentary created by Martin Doblemeyer, for which Dr. Sabella was a lead consultant. So uh, his book is available. Just follow the link below. Dr. Sabella, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. So uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, the first thing I, I remember is Stanley Harawas's quote about him. I admire him, I love him, but I disagree with him on just about everything. It so, was such a great quote. Yeah, I can relate to a lot of that. I have so much admiration for this guy, but I find that theologically a lot of disagreements, but um, an amazing man and so influential. Um, so first, though, let's start with your life. Can you give a, a taste of uh, like where you've come from theologically or your church tradition, that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm a missionary kid, right? That's, that's the long and short of it. My, uh, my parents did missionary work in Guatemala in the 1970s. Um, they were part of a church that um, today would loosely be called Neo-Pentecostal. It's part of this broad evangelical umbrella. Um, they both came from Catholic families, right? Just East Coast Catholic families. And so I think where I find myself is I, I just kind of work on holding the best of those worlds together as well as I can. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really, you know, something like communion really has grown in importance to me as this ritual that anchors my own faith practice. Um, but I also have, you know, a very evangelical sensibility around the importance of scripture and the importance of the sermon. Um, so yeah, where I can find good preaching and weekly communion, those are the kinds of churches that I gravitate to these days. All righty. And how about some background on Niebuhr, something of his family background, uh, the culture that surrounded him and his early career? Yeah, so um, Niebuhr was second generation German-American. He was born in 1892 um, in Missouri, right? So he's right smack dab in the middle of the country. His dad, Gustav, was a pastor in the what was then the uh, German Evangelical Synod, which became the Evangelical Synod of North America. And the key to know about this particular denomination that, you know, eventually became part of the United Church of Christ um, was that, or let me rephrase that, became, you know, part of, you know, a congregational church eventually. Um but back in Germany, it grew out of an attempt to bring together Lutheran and Reformed congregations, right? So from its inception, it was trying to hold these two strains of theology together, this Lutheran theology and this Reformed theology. Um, and I think that's very much reflected in Niebuhr's own sensibility. He has kind of a, a Lutheran's delight in paradox, right, and holding the saint and sinner tension together, for instance, um, but also some of the more, you know, grounding, more systematic facets of reformed thought, which you really see in his brother, H. Richard, who was also a theologian. Um, but, you know, both Reinhold and his brother were very much saved, shaped by having a father as a pastor. And, you know, in, in Reinhold's case, he went and got ordained in the same denomination. You know, he became a pastor because 
as he put it, my dad was the most interesting man in town. And so he saw his own dad's ministry as something that gave him this kind of um, ability to navigate all these different worlds as a German immigrant. And, And he saw ministry as an avenue through which to do the same, right? In addition to whatever faith component brought him to ministry, um, he he saw the potential to move around American society in a certain way as a minister that really attracted him. The social gospel movement was very significant in Niebuhr's life. How is Niebuhr both a part of it yet um, distant from it? Um, well, the social gospel, um, you know, this is a movement that started in the early 20th century. Um, and it's premise on something that, you know, we very much still see in um, evangelical Christianity today. It was centered on bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Um, And it was born out of the conviction that, you know, if enough people, um, you know, are had their hearts transformed by Christianity, it will help society itself become more Christian. Right. So bring enough people to Jesus, it will eventually transform the face of society. And, um, you know, Niebuhr early on in his ministry, so he was born in the late 1800s. He, you know, started active ministry in the late 19-teens in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, that was the first church that he he worked at as, as an ordained minister. Was very much committed to that model of, you know, I'm going to try to convert as many people as possible and see how that transforms the city of Detroit. But what he ended up finding is that the very, you know, upstanding church people in his pews, whenever he would try to push them to, you know, um, lobby for better wages on, you know, the conveyor belts of the car factories or, um, you know, deal with a, you know, a burgeoning housing crisis among the black population of Detroit, um, their eyes would just glaze over. They did not see a connection between their personal piety and these broader social problems of Detroit. And so after a while, that that led to a period of, of disillusion where he realized, okay, personal piety isn't enough. Um, I have to do more work to build people's sense of their responsibility to try to, you know, do the bare minimum to help society function in a more just way. Um, and in order to do that, we need to talk a lot more frankly about power and the dynamics of power and the dynamics of coercion than the social gospel is willing to do. And so that ended up marking a break with the social gospel for him. He retained kind of a social gospelers emphasis on the need to build a more just society. Um, But he gave up on the idea that we could bring the kingdom of God to earth. Hmm. He saw the kingdom of God as um, an eschatological category, you know, at the end of history, right? Um, history itself will be woven into the kingdom of God, but this side of the eschaton, we you know we we catch glimpses of that kingdom, but we can't build it. We do not have the tools in hand. Really, the best we can do is just be receptive to some kind of grace that helps us improve things little by little. And so Niebuhr became committed to that model of you know salvaging what redemption we can from a broken world, as opposed to just trying to build the kingdom of God wholesale. All right, and could you go into more depth about his theology and uh, his use of scripture? Yeah, so what's at the heart of Niebuhr's theology? 
Um, it's a good question. And it's actually not that different from the social gospel. It's just that it's taking sin and its effects a lot more seriously, right? And understanding sin as something that um, infects social systems as well as individuals. So, you know, the way that I would put it, you know, what's what's at the heart of Niebuhr's thought? It's, it's a question, right? How do sinful people bear witness to God's love in a broken world? Each piece of that's very important for Niebuhr. How do sinful people bear witness to God's love in a broken world? And the way that he worked that out in a more practical way is he saw, you know, what we call justice as basically the outgrowth of trying to bear witness to God's love, right? If you want justice out in the world, you're going to have to aim much higher than justice, right? You're going to have to aim for love and you're going to have to aim for agapic love, you know, the self-giving love exemplified in Jesus. Um, Niebuhr described that love as the impossible possibility, right? As broken, sinful people, can you and I um, really, truly emulate that love? No. But we sure are under an obligation to try. And in that process of striving to embody that love, um, that's where we find grace. That's where we find those moments where the kingdom of God breaks in and we encounter these, these moments of redemption. And if we lean into that hard enough, we end up with something that might look like justice on the other side. So for him, love and justice were very much linked. Um, you know, the way, the way Cornell West has, has famously put it is justice is what love looks like in public. Hmm. Um, and that's a very Niburian kind of sentiment, right? You, you, you want um, some workable form of justice. You're going to have to aim really high to get there. And could you more, you already touched on it, but you, could you go into more depth about the, his view of the kingdom of God and of Jesus himself? Um, so how, you know, how did Niebuhr understand the kingdom? Um, you know, it's helpful to think of Niebuhr because he was very much in dialogue with the Swiss German, you know, uh, World War I, World War II era theologian Karl Barth. And Karl Barth, coming out of a Reformed tradition, uh, really emphasized the kingdom of God is already here, right? That's what Jesus inaugurated, right? Um, God became human. Um, Jesus, you know, bears witness to the kingdom, teaches us how to bear witness to it as well. Um, and so the kingdom of God is already here. Our job is to bear witness to what Jesus has already done, the redemption that's already been accomplished, um, Niebuhr would agree on Jesus as the focal point, right? You know, we want to understand what God's self-giving love is. We look to Jesus for that. Uh, Jesus inaugurates the beginning of the kingdom, but the work remains very much incomplete this side of history. So, you know, the job of, you, for Niebuhr, the job of you and I as Christians is to participate as much as we can in the very incomplete building of that kingdom now, right? We catch moments of that inbreaking. Um, you know, when, when improbable things happen, um, improbable moments of justice happen in history, you know, I think he'd look at certain moments in the civil rights moment, uh, a civil rights movement as these glimpses where there's this moment of inbreaking, 
right? Um, and we we labor to be a part of those moments as best we can. And we labor in the faith that, you know, at some point beyond history, um, God can make our striving mean something, can fold it into this larger redemptive story. Um, but we must not have any illusions that we can, you know, point to precisely where the kingdom is settling on earth right now. And how did uh, Niebuhr understand and use scripture? Um, so scripture for Niebuhr, you know, we can think of him, he was an ethicist more than anything, and he was a social ethicist. He's one of the founding figures of, of Christian social ethics in, in America as a, as a discipline. Um, so he really was relentlessly focused on these questions of um, how do we enact justice right now? And, you know, for him, Scripture was a, a resource for doing just that. He loved the prophets. Because if you want to tease a social ethic out of the Bible, um, you find some of that in the New Testament, but really the bulk of that ethic is in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, right? Where you really have this, this you know, fine-grained honing out of, okay, this is what it means for God to be on the side of the poor and the widow and the orphan, right? And these are the ways that God opposes those that oppress the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and if we want a template for for how to, you know, become participants in the incomplete building of the kingdom, we go to the prophetic books of the Bible. And so the other thing that we get out of those books is how, um, and this is you know where you see the Lutheran side to, to Niebuhr working. We are perpetually both under God's judgment and God's mercy. Right? Those are realities that hover over every moment of human history. And they're both true at all times. And so that's this tension that, that Niebuhr's working with as he's reading scripture. Um, but besides the prophetic books, he, you know, would also reach back to, you know, when he's reading Genesis, for instance, he isn't asking the question of, was the earth created in the literal seven days? He had zero interest in that question. I, I don't think I'm doing Niebuhr any injustice in saying he just didn't find that question interesting. Uh, far more interesting to him was what does the story of Adam and Eve tell us about human vulnerability and our struggle to trust in God? Hmm. And why does that struggle get replicated in every single one of our lives? He took the concept of original sin very seriously. And it was rooted in, you know, we all at some point fail the trust test, right? We, we try to take our fate in our own hands in a way that we're really not supposed to. It's something we're supposed to trust God with. Um, another way that we see him, you know, using these stories to illumine the present is the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, he had this, this collection of essays for, you know, some in your audience might actually find it really interesting. It's called Beyond Tragedy. And it was published in 1937. So this, you, you can imagine what the world scene is looking like in 1937. Um, Niebuhr was one of the first people that was saying, we're going to have to join World War II eventually. We're not going to be able to duck this conflict. He was aware, in part because he was German-American, felt the responsibility to keep his father country honest. 
Um, he was aware of what Nazis were doing to Jews at the time and was sounding the alarm bell on that. Um, but in the midst of that, he publishes this collection of, of sermons, sermonic essays called Beyond Tragedy. And in one of the essays, he says, OK, we have this temptation to try to tell the story of history or the story of civilization as one of progress. Right. We started small. Right. And we, we gradually built up to something great. Or we want to tell the story of history as one of irrevocable collapse, right? Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, there's nothing we can really do about it um, except trust in God. And he's saying, how about we use the Tower of Babel as a better model for how to read history, right? Um, because this is the way that that sin operates. It's, it's most destructive, not when we're doing things that are obviously bad, it's more destructive. It's most destructive when we're pursuing our ideals and ulterior motives seep into those ideals, right? So we go on building this thing that we think is just wonderful and amazing and don't see the ulterior motives that are seeping into our projects. Don't see the ways that we're distorting these ideals to serve our own ends. And so it introduces rot into the very foundations of the things we try to build. Um. So when our projects come tumbling down, when the societies that we think are amazing start to show cracks, um, part of what Niebuhr took from the Tower of Babel is there's actually mercy in the crumbling because it means that we can finally deal with the way that sin seeped into, you know, even our best laid plans and our mm -hmm. highest ideals. And, you know, when these things crumble, we're still left with a lot of good things that we did in the process of building those things, right? The pieces are all there and we can rebuild, you know, this time in ways where we, we don't replicate the same mistakes. So, you know, he takes the story of the Tower of Babel. It's really just it, the Tower of Babel narrative in Genesis. Is, it's something like 12 or 13 verses long. It's short. Um, and uses it as a motif for how to read history and how human nature enters into, you know, how the sinful aspect of human nature infects our historical projects, but how there's mercy when those projects start to fall apart and we rebuild and how, you know, part of the life of faith is to go about the rebuilding process, trusting that God can take even the imperfect things that we do and make something good out of them. So realism is a term that's often attached to Niebuhr. How should we understand that? And what was Niebuhr's relationship to Christian realism? Okay. So realism, it's worth, uh, defining the term a little bit um, because there's, you know, a theological sense, there's a political sense, there's a philosophical sense. Um, the sense that most often gets used with Niebuhr is the political sense, right? Political realism, it has um, deep roots, right? I think we can talk about the roots of political realism in a figure like Augustine, right? St. Augustine writing in the fifth century, the book, the city of God. Um, we see it in more modern times in figures like Machiavelli, you know, in the early modern period in figures like Machiavelli and Hobbes. Uh, we see it um, crop up again in the mid 20th century. And this is where Niebuhr becomes a participant. Um, the, the realist, political realist school gained prominence in the wake of World War II. And part of the reason it gained so much prominence was because the world really had just fallen apart. And people were asking themselves, okay, if we want to build a better world, we, we need to take what's wrong with human beings seriously. <laughs> if we're going to stand a chance. So basically, political realism is presupposing that people are self-interested, that nations are self-interested, that they're acting in their self-interest, 
and that we can't expect them to do anything better than that. Um, and for Niebuhr, that was an important starting point, but that's all it was, was a starting point, right? Hard boil political realists, they're always looking at everything through the lens of what's in the interests, political interests of nation X or Y. Um, how are they going to accrue power through doing uh, A, B, or C, right? And you can't expect them to do anything beyond pursue interest and power. Um, what Niebuhr did, and this is where you see the theological element of his political realism, is he says, you know, we need to be honest about um, how deep self-interest runs in all of us, right? It's part of the legacy of original sin. Um, but we also believe that human beings are made in God's image, and are able to shoot for really high ideals. And that's the paradox of being human. We can envision um, the kingdom of God. We really can, intoxicating versions of it. We try to enact it. Our self-interest keeps getting the better of us, right? Distortions keep entering into the way that we try to enact it. Um, but Niebuhr's version of realism, which combines the theological insights of original sin, is basically saying, yes, be honest about self-interest and how deep it runs. Be honest about how sin permeates social structures. Be honest about how it manifests in the society of your day. Um, but once you've done that work, um, start shooting for the ideals. Start shooting for love. Right? Don't lose sight of the self-interested piece. It's always there. We can't ever make the mistake of pretending it's not we have to hold ourselves accountable we have to let others hold us accountable right but keep shooting for that ideal right because okay. that is also part of you know you know the image of god is still still in us right distorted but it's still there right and by god's grace it actually can help us do better and help us make actual progress in history so okay, that's good. you know neighbor's relationship to realism and where he differed from hard-boiled political realists because he was insistent on, you know, political realists, if all you shoot for is, you know, adjusting, you know, playing power games, society will decline pretty quickly. If you want to keep society moving in any kind of positive directions, you have to gonna keep, have to keep aiming beyond self-interest, even as you're honest about um, the perpetual reality of self-interest. All right, then. And more of his thought, of course, is expressed in uh, his key books. So if you could briefly go over uh, his three, uh, three principal books, Moral Man, The Children of Light, and The Irony of American History, just brief overviews of those. Okay, so Moral Man and Immoral Society was written in 1932. Um, this is just a couple of years after the Great Depression hit. Uh, so Niebuhr's watching, you know, the people that were making factories hum now forming cues at bread lines. And there's this humiliation and desperation that comes with that. Um, he watched the grand projects of the social gospel crumble with the economic crash as well. Um, you know, he saw the flare up of, you know, there's this, this, all these class tensions and these race tensions that really begin to simmer under the surface, uh, you know, during the era of the Great Depression. And um, so he basically starts asking the question, you know, what does it mean to try to enact any good in politics under circumstances such as these? And the basic conclusion that he, the basic premise of that book is, yes, individuals are capable of being remarkably good, right? 
we can be really good to our friends and our families and our loved ones. Uh, we tend to be good to people that we identify as part of our group, right? If we pass the same homeless person on the way to work every day, chances are at some point we're going to feel compassion and start giving them money and maybe do so on a more regular basis, right? But when it comes to, you know, helping somebody struggling at, say, the U.S.-Mexico border, <laughs> we don't feel that same personal tie with them. So we're a lot less likely to do anything to help them out. In fact, our tendency is going to be to try to hold our resources for people who are in our own group. And that's where the selfishness of groups comes in, where he talks about the immorality of the group and the potential immorality of society. And part of what that was for him was a mechanism for explaining, you know, you and I, we, we all know wonderful people um, who, when you look at the way that they align their politics in terms of groups, feel real animus against people on the other side, right? To put it in very simple language, it's, it's kind of like, let's say you um, meet somebody at a dinner party, you hit it off with them. Um, after establishing a personal connection, you find out that they're fans of your opposing sports team, right? Chances are, once you've established that sense of connection, you'll rid each other about it, but you're fine, right? You'll work past the fact that you cheer for different teams. Now, let's say those two same people were wearing their team's colors at a rivalry game, and they bumped into each other, you know, in a walkway in the stadium, they might get into a fight. Because in that moment... The only way they're seeing each other is through their group affiliation. They're not seeing each other as individuals. Right? So that's one, another way of explaining the divide between moral humans and immoral society. And so Niebuhr's conclusion at the end of that book is, um, if we want um, to enact actual justice in society, we're going to have to make our peace with how to coerce groups into doing the right thing, right, when they don't want to. And do so nonviolently, right? He, he really wanted to hold on. He talked about elections as, you know, ways that we manage coercion in social circumstances. The winning party in an election gets to pass a bunch of legislation that the other side doesn't like. That's not violent, but it is a form of coercion, right? So he insisted where possible, use nonviolent means of coercion. But we need to be honest about the fact that if we're going to take all these competing groups and build some kind of justice into society, um, some groups are going to be left feeling like they got their arms twisted and that's okay. Cause that's the only way to get, you know, these groups, which are fundamentally immoral in the way that they behave as collectives um, to agree to anything that remotely resembles justice. So that's moral man and immoral society. Uh, children of light and children of darkness. Um, this is 1944. This is, you know, world war two still happening. Um, and the dilemma that Niebuhr is confronting there, I mean, so he was one of the first people to push for intervention. By 1944, he had decisively won that debate. The U.S. was full throttle into the war, and, you know, the, the economy was on war footing. Um, and he was already realizing, okay, the Allies are going to win this war, but what do we do then? What kind of society to be, do we build? And what do we do with democracy? Because again, in retrospect, I think it's easy to take for granted that robust democracies emerged in the wake of World War II. That wasn't clear at the time, right? You had a bunch of the world either go fascist or go communist. 
um, you know, right before the war, and this is before the Cold War, so we haven't had this massive confrontation with the communist bloc of the Soviet Union, but Niebuhr saw that potential confrontation looming. And so he was asking himself, how do we uh, position dem- democracy as the alternative that we need to pursue between the, you know, the extreme on the left of communism and the extreme of the right of fascism? And what he ended up arguing in that book is that if we're going to do thread that needle and actually build um, workable democratic societies, we need democracies that take original sin seriously, right? That take seriously the fact that human beings are self-interested and easily deluded um, and really work on calibrating checks and balances in a way that take that reality into account. Um, Because one of the things that he did with that book that I actually think was really important is he made very clear, because the the image of the children of light and the children of darkness, um, that can sound, for for readers of the time, it sounded really obvious. Oh, clearly the light allies are the children of light and the, you know, the axis powers are the children of darkness and Stalin's a child of darkness, etc. But in the book itself, uh, Niebuhr argues um, that's actually not the case. Yes, there are just a couple of children of darkness. Like he pinpointed Hitler and Stalin and Napoleon as people who were true children of darkness, who were so um, bent on pursuing their own interests that they were literally incapable of pursuit of conceiving of an ideal outside of themselves. But he said the vast majority of people who follow after them are children of light who've been deluded, right? They're capable yeah. of an ideal of pursuing an ideal that's bigger than themselves. And these children of darkness have co-opted that ideal and deceived them into pursuing ends that are not good for them or anyone else. And he's also clear, you know, on the allied side, the U S was isolationist until the 11th hour. We were deluded children of light who thought we could stay out of this conflict. We told ourselves that we were doing it out of some high-flown commitment to pacifism. That wasn't what it was. It was self-interest that we were not willing to admit to ourselves. And we need to own up to our own delusions as the children of light. Um, and so to, for the children of light to stop being deluded, they need to become wise. Part of how they become wise is by learning from the children of darkness about the power of self-interest and how deep yeah. that self-interested tendency runs in all of us. So don't absorb their malice. Right. Don't weaponize self-interest the way they do. But the way that they were able to bring the world to the brink of collapse um, shows that they have a very good insight into what humans actually care about, regardless of what they think or say they care about. And that teaches us something about our own sin nature, and it will give us some tools for for dealing with that on the other end. All right. And the third one. So the irony of American history uh, comes in in 1952. Um, so at this point, you know, I, again, Niebuhr lived during an era of head spinning change. Um, on a calendar, these dates are not that far from each other, 1932, 1944, 1952. Um, but the world looks so different at each one of those dates. And in 1952, um, you know, America has emerged as the very clear, overwhelming winner of the World War II era, right? As a nuclear power, as the most prosperous, powerful country the world has ever seen. Um, And it happened in less than a decade. It was just this absolutely 
stunning turn of fortune. Um, and what Niebuhr ended up doing there is he, he, you know, so 1932, the question was, how do we keep, you know, how do we achieve a workable justice in the face of the Great Depression? 1944, how do we rebuild an, a world that flew apart on us? 1952 is, how do we not let all this power and success and prosperity go to our head? Right? How do we keep our feet on the ground in the midst of that? And so the irony of American history was his attempt to do that. And, and basically, he talked about um, the irony of good intention, right? The irony of America wanting to see itself as, as good and righteous um, and, you know, kind of this, this you know, this, this on the vanguard of everything good on the world stage. And him saying, like, listen, it's the right intention. Try to be those things. But beware of the ways that you fall short of your own professed ideals. Right? And he, he called back on American history in this, right? You, you know, America has this image of itself as the land of the free. Um, let's talk about how colonists treated uh, Native Americans. Right? Mm. This was freedom for some. Right? But there are other people who faced a very brutal side to the American experiment. Right. And we need to hold those things in tension. Right. It, it's not that that negates our ideals. We should still keep pursuing the ideals to be the land of the free. But let's be honest about the ways we fall short. And the more glaring example, obviously, is even more glaring example is slavery. Right. Three fifths compromise, things that are baked into the very moments of founding. Again, it doesn't negate the ideal. Keep pursuing the ideal of liberty and justice for all but be honest about the ways that you fall short and have continued to fall short right up to the 1950s. This is still the era of Jim Crow. Right. And so trying to get America to kind of thread that needle of keep holding your ideals, keep championing them, um, keep pushing for them. But when, you know, the Soviet Union says that you're not living up to them, don't dismiss them out of hand. They might be onto something. And listen to the critique, right? It might be done out of malice. It might be done to try to embarrass you, whatever else. But if there is a grain of truth in it, listen to it. And, you know, finally, he uses the motif of, of divine laughter, where he says, you know, the, the uh, Bible talks about God laughing at the wicked. And he says, yes, yeah, sometimes divine laughter toward humans can be scornful. Um, but other times that laughter is just, you know, ironic laughter at the clumsiness of your children, you know? And... You know, we need to learn to laugh at ourselves as well. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Because he, he does his observation about humor and says, um, when we laugh at ourselves, right, when somebody's poking fun at us and we can laugh, it's because we realize that they are actually pointing out something that's ridiculous, right? Something that we're doing that doesn't, it's incongruent. It doesn't fit with our self-perception. And when we can laugh, it's actually healthy because we can own it. We're not taking ourselves too seriously. And then we can start maybe fixing that thing that we're doing that might be a little bit ridiculous and that we need to learn to do that as our nation, right? We need to laugh at ourselves, learn to laugh at ourselves a bit and not take ourselves too seriously. And that in not taking ourselves too seriously, maybe we'll find some grace and find some repentance and find a way forward. All right. Uh, so Niebuhr was a very busy person. He was a pastor, a theologian, ethicist, activist. 
Um, can you give us an idea of what his life was actually like, what he did, how he um, juggled all his different roles? Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes was uh, this. I forget which volume it comes out of, but one of Niebuhr's colleagues said, uh, Reinhold puts more energy into brushing his teeth in the morning than I managed to muster right. over the course of an entire day. Um, and he was extraordinarily active. Um you know, I, I double checked this number so many times because it's just so mind boggling. He published over 2,500 individual pieces. Over 2,500. A lot of them were op eds. It was him, you know, firing off a, you know, a quick article on a particular issue, you know. So we're not talking about 2,500 books here. Right. But that's 2,500 individual pieces. Um, on top of that, he was really in demand on the chapel circuit at universities. It's worth marking. He very rarely preached in churches. Right. Um, churches wanted nothing to do with him because he was calling the church on the carpet for too many things. <laughs> there was a risk to having him come to your church. Uh, but university chapels loved them because he, he was a magnet for students. Um, he was described by one of his colleagues as a, a dramatist of ideas in the theological arena and that's true there's, there's there's something very dramatic about the way that he presents ideas ties them together with these biblical motifs and then relates them to the present that's captivating and that um ironically enough uh, a lot of people with zero religious affiliation were completely enamored by right so he there's a group of people that call themselves atheists for niebuhr um and it was basically people who were saying like we're we're we don't buy into the God thing. But when Niebuhr talks about original sin and human self-interest, that's really important. He's talking about something we need to pay attention to. And so they did, right? They'd come to his sermons. Um, and he was on this chapel circuit almost every weekend. Um, you know, really, he was home once or twice a week. That was the most he could finagle, you know, with his Anglican wife. Um, he would accompany to her, her to church twice a year. Right. Which is just unbelievable. Like it gives you an idea. And on top of it, you know, he was politically active. Right. He helped, uh, you know, launch Americans for Democratic Action in the wake of World War Two. This was the organization that helped launch Vital Center Liberalism that helped carve out this space for, you know, what does democracy look like in a country that's also running the most powerful military in the world? Right. It was like one of the organizations tasked with with trying to answer that question. And it had, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt as a part of it and a bunch of other political figures as a part of it. Um, so politically very busy. He was teaching. He was lecturing. He was preaching. Um, so it's no wonder that he had a stroke in 1952. Right. Mm. It, it forced him to slow down. And, um, you know, having him ref hearing him reflect on the stroke and and how he learned to appreciate his relationship to his wife in a whole new way you know he said you know it's i you know we had been married at that point they had been married for two decades and he's like I, I love my wife to pieces we've been married for two decades but i had never fathomed the depth of her devotion and love until i was stricken right when he finally was able to slow down he realized oh right this person that i li live my this really hectic life with is really an incredible human and um, learned to appreciate, um, you know, everything that she did for him in a whole new light. Um, and so, yeah, I, the thing with Niebuhr's busyness is he, 
after his stroke, he reflected on the fact it wasn't healthy, right? He realized his frenetic activity was rooted in him running from something. And later in life, he struggled with depression, you know, pretty, pretty serious bouts of depression. And he suspected that his frenetic activity was a way of staving off depression, right? Okay. So he, well, he saw his- a, a psychic element behind it, even though he was, you know, involved in all, all this like, kind of ministry stuff and, 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 and trying to do everything he could to improve society. He realized, okay, my frenetic activity is rooted in me trying to run from something. And maybe at some point I need to confront that. And could you say a few words about his life as a pastor and then as he moved into being a professor at Union? Yeah, so... Um, you know, he was a full-time pastor from 1916 to 1928. This was in Detroit, Michigan. Um, so he spent over a decade in the ministry. Um, and again, this was this, the church that he was in charge of, it grew from just a handful of families to, you know, over 600 members by the time he left. And, and part of this was tied to the population boom in Detroit because this is when the automobile industry is ramping up. And so migrants are flooding the Detroit area. Um, but it also speaks to, um, you know, his acumen as a, an administrator and his ability as a speaker, right? He was a compelling person and it drew people to the church. Um, but even in that era, you know, he still got the political bug um, you know, there's a mayoral r- race in Detroit in the mid 1920s that um, pitted a ma- machine politician who happened to be Catholic um, against a prohibitionist opponent uh, who is also part of the KKK. And this was a bit of a dilemma for Niebuhr because he was a prohibitionist, as were many social gospelers. He really did see early on alcohol as being at the root of all sorts of social problems and was compelled by the idea that, you know, if we outlaw alcohol, um, you know, you won't have men, you know, stumbling out of factories and spending their wages on liquor instead of feeding their families. Right. He, he saw potential there. But um, the fact that a KKK backed person was running for Detroit really scared him because the, the KKK had a lot of power in Michigan and Indiana in the 1920s. Um, its membership roles in Detroit alone, I think were close to 50,000 people. Um, so he came out publicly for the Catholic machine politician, right? Against the morally upstanding guy who's backed by the KKK. Um, and you know, the, the Catholic politician won and out of gratitude for Niebuhr's support had him chair the interracial committee for the city of Detroit. So that's when Niebuhr started rubbing elbows with black pastors in Detroit and realizing okay, we have a whole other level of issues on our hands in Detroit because these the black community is basically being muscled out of housing. They're, not, they're being run out of neighborhoods by the KKK and forced to live in, in these, these areas with really subpar living conditions. And um, wrestling with those issues in tandem with black pastors and you know, Jewish leaders really shaped his social outlook and I think is why he became so committed to, you know, issues of, of race and injustice later on is he saw firsthand um, how brutal a city like Detroit was toward its, its uh, black population in the 1920s. And then he was invited to union. Yes. So 1928, um, because he was politically active and 
writing articles. His his star was beginning to rise, right? Also a very gifted writer. Um, and so, um, you know, somebody with pull at Union basically said, I will fund a chair at Union for Reinhold Niebuhr if you hired him. Hire him. I will at least, mm. you know, pay part of his salary so that he can come. And the Union faculty at first, I mean, they didn't, most, a lot of people didn't want him. I think he won approval by one vote, right? Because they just, you know, he had zero pedigree. He didn't have a doctorate, right? He had an MDiv and that was it. And he was being brought onto the faculty with people with doctorates from fancy schools. And, um, and Reinhold is not a fancy guy, right? He was a, he described himself as a Yahoo from Missouri. And it's obviously self-deprecating, but it's getting at something. He, you know, second generation immigrant kid, you know, went to Yale Divinity School, but there he said he felt like a mongrel among thoroughbreds. He did not feel at home there. And um, basically got asked to become part of Union, which at the time was the mainstream Protestant seminary in the country. It was very prestigious, very well regarded, um, really just on the strength of the fact that um, he was such a good writer and communicator. And um, so he ended up taking the call to Union. I think he felt like his the pull of politics was such in Detroit that he, start, I think, started to feel that that was where his real life's work needed to go. And the appeal of being in New York City and teaching ethics and being able to get involved in New York City politics was was loomed really large for him. And so he took the post. And by the time he got to Union, it, you know, quickly became clear that they, you know, they, they were going to have to work hard to keep him. Um, because he was a wildly popular professor who really connected with students and really raised the profile of the institution. And then as his theology de developed, he's also um, writing and working at the same time as um, Karl Barth, who you mentioned before. Um, so they have a particular encounter at a conference. And so it became very clear how they stood in tension with each other. So I found that very fascinating, that description in the book. Could you share a little of that with us? Yes. Yeah, so um, Karl Barth rose to fame in the wake of World War I when he wrote a book called The Epistle to the Romans. And basically, The Epistle to the Romans was his just absolute rebuke of the liberal German theology he grew up with, right? Where he basically was saying, this theology places way too much confidence in human beings, right? You're, you don't, um, you're not going to get to God by saying man in a loud voice is a Karl Barth quote. Right. And so he really, you know, he's referred to as neo-Orthodox because he is echoing Calvin and basically really centering the sovereignty of God and talking about the word as God's self-communication. Um, mm -hmm. And um, basically saying, we're not building the kingdom of God here, right? The best we can hope to do is to bear witness to what God has already done in Jesus, right? And by the 1920s, uh, Niebuhr was already starting to write letters disagreeing pretty sharply with Bart. And one of his cutting observations about Bart is, listen, he, you know, paints this really vivid picture of of god but he loses any human element in that picture right what grounds does bart give us for continuing to strive to build a better world and the way that he put it is bartianism 
creates and then devours ethical passion, right? Hmm. The arresting portrait of God builds this passion in you. And then since there's no room for human action in the system, um, then the passion just withers away and you're left stuck with nothing. And, you know, whether that's fair or not, that's a whole other question. So I don't want to present this as the, the final word on Bart by any means, but it was Niebuhr's critique. So fast forward now to 1948. Uh, this is the meeting of the World Council of Churches. Um, again, in context here, um, the world's still in shambles and churches realized, okay, we are basically the only form of viable international infrastructure left in the world right now, right? You have all these blocks that went to war, their infrastructure shattered, their channels of diplomacy are shattered. Um, but these churches have get, kept, tr you know, track and kept in touch with churches in other countries all over the world. And so there's an, an actual infrastructure there that can, you know, potentially help um, bring stability and, 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 and help anchor this, this period in world history. So at that conference, uh, Bart kicks off the conference with a talk called No Christian Marshall Plan. And in the course of that talk, he says, you know, and, and, and keeping again with his, his theological sensibilities and his system is the first thing we need to do in this conference is to give up any sense that the care of our world is our care, right? And to let go of the dreadful, godly, ridiculous opinion that we are the mythical figure Atlas destined to carry the dome of heaven on our shoulders, Right? That's not our work. That is God's work. And we bear witness to what God does. Uh, Niebuhr did not take very kindly to that. So they ended up going, it ended up being this published repartee uh, where Niebuhr responded to No Christian Marshall Plan by basically saying, um, listen, Bart gives us a wonderful theology of the catacombs, right? It's a great theology for a church that's under siege. But once the siege is lifted, right, and people who are mm. identified as Christian are able to move around in the world, what does he give you, right? The other way he puts it is, you know, Bart gives you great resources for confronting the devil when the devil appears with two horns and both cloven feet, right? right? But he doesn't give you any resources when you're just seeing like half a cloven foot and one horn. Right. In other words, when, when we're working in situations where there's something a little bit wrong, not completely wrong, and we need to make these fine grained judgments between two broken political options, let's say, um, what resources does Bart Stock gives us for navigating, you know, what's really kind of like more ordinary Christian life, right, as opposed to this moment of, of cataclysm. And the other image he uses here is, is the ark, basically saying, you know, it's a great theology to get you through the storm. Once the ark lands, Right? You're going to need something more than just saying God is great. You're going to need something that helps you get into the nitty gritty of, of these, these very ambiguous decisions that all human beings have to make over the ordinary course of life. So that ended up being the debate. It's, it's a really interesting debate. And I think um, what I'd say about their relationship, Niebuhr really respected Bart a lot and just found him very frustrating. Right. You know, he, he was at a conference with Bart once and, and, you know, wrote a letter to his wife where he said, you know, Bart is a genius. He's a poet and a prophet. 
And I do not understand how somebody who's that much of a genius has such a hard time relating to other human beings. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that expresses, you know, the, the, the tension between, you know, admiration, but frustration. And I, you know, I think they both kind of caricatured one another, but I think there's a lot of truth in the caricature, right? You know, right. was Niebuhr right about everything, you know, about Bart at the end of the day? Not really. A lot of it was caricature. But there is something essential that he's getting right, that I think um, Bart understood there is something there, and I think Bartians today need to pay attention to. Um, and somebody like Karawas, um, you know, when he uses Bartian critiques of Niebuhr, um, again, I think it's the same sort of thing, where it's a bit of a caricature of Niebuhr, but there's a lot of truth in the caricature. And people who are drawn to Niebuhr's thought do well to pay attention to what somebody like Stanley has to say about Niebuhr. All right. So uh, Niebuhr was very concerned about race. He saw a lot of the effects of racism close up. So could you trace his thought and uh, some of the things he did about it in his life? Yeah. So um, basically Niebuhr's track record on racial questions, it tracks very closely with whether he was personally interacting um, you know, with black pastors and black leaders or civil rights leaders, right? During times where those interactions were present, he was really sharp on these issues. Um, you know, during times when he wasn't, say, after his stroke and he kind of ducked out of public life, um, that's where you see him grow a little bit more dull on these issues. But part of what was remarkable with him on the issue of race is he he did see it as a very real and very serious kind of existential American problem. Um as early as the 1920s. Um, and, you know, he, I believe this was in 1930, he, he took a, a trip uh, down south to talk to pastors down south and, um, you know, came back from, and this is, you know, the Jim, part of the Jim Crow era. Um, but when he was reflecting on that experience, he's, he basically said, you know, we need to be honest about the fact that when, black people get lynched um that isn't some kind of aberration it's the logical outgrowth of jim crow people are acting perfectly rationally within the jim crow system when they end up lynching mm. somebody and that whole system uh. needs to be taken down if we're going to uh, find even a modicum of justice for black people in the south that's a pretty stunning thing to say in 1930 and we have him making similarly sharp observations um, in Moral Man and Immoral Society, where um, he he's basically talking about, um, you know, what kind of leverage do black people have at their disposal to get more justice for their community, right? So this is within the context of this broader argument about the immorality of groups. And he uh, sees uh, black Americans at this point at just just being completely overwhelmed by the white population, right? They're, they're a much smaller segment of the population than they are now. Um, and he said, here's the trick. Here's a difficult thing. Um, in terms of justice, would they be justified in lashing out violently uh, because of what they suffered under slavery and Jim Crow? Yes. Would that strategy make any sense in the context of America? No, because the backlash would be too severe. So he actually used Gandhi as an example. He said, if you want to know how to thread that needle, look at somebody like Gandhi, right? 
we talk about Gandhi as nonviolent, but Gandhi succeeded at basically getting the British to grant Indian independence, um, not because of the power of his nonviolent witness, but because of the economic boycott that went with it. Right? Mm. Gandhi was able to exert economic pressure in a nonviolent way that put, you know, uh, factory workers in Lancashire out of work and brought them real suffering. But because his technique was nonviolent, because he was willing to absorb more, more violence than the boycott enacted, uh, the Lancashire spinners respected him, <laughs> right? And other people in the British Empire were willing to come to the table because they respected um, the method, even though the method had teeth to it and was actually costing British people. So he encouraged the black population in the U.S. to look at a similar strategy. Don't go the violent route, but figure out how to apply economic leverage, right? Um, because that can hurt enough to extract concessions from the white population without triggering a violent backlash lash that will just create far more destruction for, for black people in the end. And again, this is 1932. You know, we think of... Um, Martin Luther King and the way that he uses nonviolent strategies. Um, Niebuhr's helping him think through a lot of those questions. Now, I, I want to be clear, you know, King had his own theology. He had, you know, he centered love in ways that Niebuhr did not. But when it came to the brass tacks of how to make nonviolent actions uh, achieve results, Niebuhr was very much a part of him thinking through that. Right. So this fine grained analysis of power and economic boycott and how to leverage it that we see in moral man and immoral society ends up informing Martin Luther King and his decisions to say, put people in front of fire hoses, knowing that this is actually harming people, right, his own people, but trusting that the images of that harm projected on newspapers across the country of nonviolent protesters just being hammered by fire hoses and being having dogs let loose on them and being beaten up by police. Uh, would trigger enough of a crisis of conscience to induce change, right? So King thinking through these strategies, that there's there's an Iberian component there as well. Um, so all that to say, by the 1950s, you know, you have King really making the push for major civil rights legislation, leading into the, um, you know, what we think of as a classic civil rights era, culminating in the March of Washington in 1963. Um, Niebuhr is largely absent from that moment in that conversation because he actually thought King might have been pushing too hard and needed to be a little bit more patient. And um, in retrospect, he was wrong about that, right? Um, King needed to keep pushing. It's a good thing he did. Um, but I, I think part of that was because he lost personal contact. This is, you know, post-stroke, he's restricted his interactions, personal interactions with leaders and, because he's not in church basements, you know, seeing the underlying energy for himself of the civil rights movement. Um, he perceives it in a very different light than people who were very much involved in the movement at the time. Um, and incidentally, he regains kind of a sharper insights on race and the economic component. You know, he, he starts talking about black unemployment in the 1960s as a very real problem again. Right. And his critique of, you know, what needed to be done in the wake of very real gains in the civil rights movement, but there's still more work to be done. 
right? His, he got he was sharp on those issues, I think, in part because he's very close friends with somebody like Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Jewish rabbi who was very embedded in the civil rights movement, and other figures who had those close ties to the movement that were, were able to give him that insider's perspective again. All right. And how about his thought on peace, pacifism, war, and then especially nuclear war? Um, it's a softball to end this, huh? Um, so the thing to remember with pacifism is that the pacifism that Niebuhr confronted in the 1930s is very different from pacifism today. Um, there's a much more substantial pacifist argument that's gained currency in Christian circles um, you know, in the Cold War, post-Cold War era that we've inherited that, that Niebuhr didn't see in the 1930s. But basically, you know, Niebuhr was a pacifist for a while. People forget this about him. But, um, you know, during World War One, you know, he was a young German-American who really felt pressure to prove his American bona fides by pushing hard for America against the Germans. So he did, right? He'd go around to, um, you know, different camps with soldiers and, you know, people, recruitment areas and would like, you know, rally people for the American cause in World War I. Uh, in the early 1920s, he went and visited Europe for himself. So he's, you know, in the Ruhr region of Germany on the border with France. It was still French occupied at the time. And... You know, he basically said, I didn't realize you could see hatred with the naked eye, but here it feels really close to it, right? You had these French soldiers careening through the streets and, you know, you start, when people realized he was German, they would start opening up to him and they'd tell these horrible stories of these atrocities that happened during the war. And so he reflected on his own complicity, right, as a minister uh, pushing to join the war. And he basically says in in this reflection from 1923 i'm done with the war business and i hope i can make the resolution stick so he does become pacifist mm. for a while but he later grew disillusioned with pacifism as he started to see the rise of nazi germany right because he realized that his fellow pacifists um he, he discerned this ulterior motive underlying their pacifism where really at the end of the day, they felt superior to the rest of the world. That's why they didn't want to fight. It wasn't, you know, born out of this conviction, oh, you should never do harm, right? It was, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're more civilized than these Europeans and we know better. So we're just going to ride this one out, stick stick it out. You know, we, we, we have plenty of, you know, industry and farming in America. Let's just batten down the hatch, let's let the storm blow over. And Niebuhr's theological critique of that ended up becoming like, okay, first of all, there's no such thing as not being complicit, right? If, you know, people in your city are starving and you're doing nothing to feed them, um, that's a sin of omission, right? And if on the European continent, you have the rise of this toxic movement that partly grew because of the extractions you extracted right at the treaty of westphalia um then um you can't just sit by and do nothing and say that you're claim taking the high road right you have to figure out ways to try to stem the rise of these movements that you know as nazism took root he's like basically it's, it's claiming jewish lives so you're just going to sit there well well while jewish people get carted to, to concentration camps 
Like, how does that have any principle behind it? And so he he called his fellow pacifists on the carpet for really wanting to sit out something, um, not for any good theological reasons, but because um, they just didn't want to do the heavy lift of facing this. So his theology, you know, how his theology developed away from pacifism is he came to the conclusion of like, listen, first of all, the world's deeply interconnected, right? We we can't, you know, suffering in Europe or Asia or war breaking out in those places we're connected to it. And this is before the era of globalization. We're not just very obvious how we're connected to all those things. Um, and saying, A, we're complicit. There's nothing we can do about that. That's just a fact. And B, once we've sorted that, um, sometimes we do face these painful decisions between the lesser of two evils, right? Is the greater evil to commit violence by going to war? Or is the greater evil standing pat while people die? And it's a horrible, gut-wrenching choice, but that's what comes with living in a broken world. And you're going to need the tools of your faith to help you discern what's the lesser of two evils and when is war the lesser of two evils, right? Mm. So there's zero glamour in his understanding of when you go to war in a situation like this. It's never this glorious cause of righteousness, ever, right? It's always the lesser of two evils. But once you make the choice, you, yes, you commit and you see it through. Um, and so that's part of why he became such a compelling figure in the wake of World War II, because that was the sort of argument he was making. And people started realizing, OK, World War II feels like a scenario where war really was the lesser of two evils. And it's a really good thing that uh, we joined the Allied cause in that conflict. Then he had some his thought changed about nuclear weapons. Yeah, you know, I think, again, I think it's just really hard for us to, you know, in retrospect, you know, what we think about nuclear weapons is going to be very different than what people thought about them in 1945, right? Um, when they were first exploded, I, you know, I, you know, Niebuhr, I think, bought the idea that this was kind of like, this was the masterstroke. We, 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 you know, given the Japanese chances to to settle, they didn't take them. And we just needed to do something to sh- shock and awe, right? To show, like, listen, you stand zero chance. Nuclear weapons were a way of doing that. Um, but over time, he really kind of came to regret taking that position. And especially as nuclear bombs became more powerful, which they very quickly did. You know, um, you know the bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are you know, firecrackers in comparison to what we have today, which is terrifying to think about. Um, you know, then he really started to rethink whether this kind of weapon should ever be deployed, right? And started to be more sympathetic toward, you know, very cautious kind of like nuclear non-proliferation type arguments. Um, because he did start to see it as, as um, you know, a much bigger moral problem and a much bigger Rubicon to cross than it felt initially um, at the end of World War II. All right. So um, many accused him of being an an establishment theologian, um, but others saw him as an outsider to, you know, the system or however you want to describe it. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, So 
was Niebuhr an establishment theologian or uh, was he an outsider? Listen, it's going to sound like I'm punting, but I think it's true. He was kind of both. Um, so he was an establishment figure in the sense that, you know, in the, from the mid-1940s through the early 1950s, people loved to quote him, right? He was on the cover of Time Magazine's 25th anniversary edition, which is astonishing. It, it still blows my mind that, you know, Henry Luce, the owner of Time Magazine, decided 25th anniversary edition, let's put a theologian on the cover, right, instead of a shiny movie star. And it's a very somber cover. It's, you know, Niebuhr with furrowed brow with the cross in the background and, you know, what looks like an apocalyptic hellscape behind them. I mean, it's, it's very somber. Um, so he, you know, he had this, you know, public, very visible presence in American life. Um, but I really think that most Americans kind of enjoyed basking in the respectability that came with quoting Niebuhr without actually taking the time to absorb his critiques. Um, because he was very self-critical about how, you know, he encouraged people to be very self-critical about how they wielded power. We don't see that self-criticism in how Americans wielded their power from the late 1940s through the 70s, right? That self-criticism went out the window. And, you know, in the decisions to how to, for how to frame the Cold War, um, Niebuhr would have been very against the idea of framing the conflict as the godly West versus godless communism. Right. You know, even when he, when he would discuss the conflict, he would try to remind Americans like, listen, like communism is problematic for all sorts of reasons. (laughs) Um, But remember that run of the mill people in the Soviet union want the same things out of life that you do. They want to be safe. They want to be prosperous. They want their families to be safe, right? Like you can appeal to that fundamental humanity. Don't lose sight of that, right? And just because Billy Graham is, he's, he's a famous critic of Billy Graham, just because Billy Graham is filling stadiums, right? It's, it's, you know, he looked at this religious revival of the 1940s and 1950s and basically said, listen, it's, an, it's a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. Right. You 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 fill stadiums, get people to give a commitment to Christ and then leave. What does that mean? What does that change? And does it just kind of pad our own sense of ourselves as a righteous nation without actually changing the way that we go about, um, you know, being a leader on the world stage? Right. Um, And yet it was Billy Graham who became the figure who canceled everybody from, um, you know, Eisenhower up through Obama. Right. They all had to do photo ops with Graham. Right. Some of them wanted to. Others felt obligated to. But they all had to do it because that was Graham's prestige in American life. And he ended up becoming the establishment figure, not Niebuhr. Right. So you mentioned Eisenhower in his farewell address. He warns America about the military industrial complex. So, I mean, that seems to me like a Niberian type thought that you would never see again from other presidents. That's an excellent point, and you're right. I think, you know, Eisenhower with the rise of the, um, um, yeah, with, with, with the, in, in the, the military-industrial complex, um, saw something that I think would have really resonated with somebody like Niebuhr. Um, 
and and yeah you're right it is it is this moment where there is this tone of caution and you know where i think niebuhr's um influence did continue and this might be part of what's going on with somebody like eisenhower is the realist school of international relations which actually formed a lot of foreign policy decisions during the cold war era was very much grounded in you know even something like the policy of containment right don't try to beat the soviets outright that's not going to work we can't have another world war just try to contain them right find the line uh, pump Europe full of money with the Marshall Plan, use soft power to try to contain their expansion, build something that's more appealing than the Soviet model, right? So you're indirectly kind of like hemming in this enemy. That's very cautious, right? right. That's a very nuanced approach. Um, and Niebuhr was a strong supporter of it. And people who launched that approach were very much in conversation with Niebuhr. They knew his thought really well. Um and you're getting that same sense of caution with somebody like Eisenhower, who was able to take a self-critical stance. But, you know, I think Eisenhower also needs to be held account for the fact that, you know, he's the only president ever to get baptized while he was in office. Oh. Right? You, you think of what message that sends in the early Cold War era. Um, hmm. When you're branding yourself as the godly nation taking on the godless communists that's a really big statement um in favor of this manichaean division between the united states and the soviets so you do have somebody with like eisenhower's having this mixed legacy and i think i think this is a really good example of where of you know how is neighbor establishment figure it's in the background it's in this influence that got you know exercised in the background but it's not in the really big public facing stuff the public-facing stuff, uh, Eisenhower was fine with pumping up, you know, America is godly. But in his farewell speech, you hear him saying, we need to be cautious about the military-industrial complex, right? Those quiet notes of caution is where you hear Niebuhr resurface uh, throughout the era. All righty. Well, that's probably a good place to stop there. I mean, there's so much other great stuff that you uh, refer to in your book, but... So I strongly recommend checking out the book, uh, An American Conscience, The Ride Hold Niebuhr Story by Dr. Jeremy Sabella. Follow the link below. Um, you'll love the book. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Sabella, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. All right. Peace to everyone.